0: Welcome, everybody. This is the U.S. Grace Force Podcast. I'm Doug Barry, along with my always very good friend, Father Richard Heilman, back from his vacation. Tonight, we've got Joshua Charles with us. We're going to be talking about some really good, uplifting and warm, fuzzy sort of stuff. You know, the Antichrist, the Church, Freemasonry, all that good stuff there. But, of course, we always want to begin everything with prayer. And, Father, we leave that to your department.
1: All right. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the heavenly hosts, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. Awesome. Amen. Great, wonderful. Thank you very much, Father. And as always, we like to thank everybody out there who helps the U.S. Grace Force podcast, especially by your prayers and sharing this and getting this information out to other people. These messages are critical, especially in the times that we're in right now. We want to reach as many hearts and souls, as many lives as possible. So we thank all of you for all that you do to help us with that. Also, we thank those of you who support us through the Patreon program. If you'd like to help us pay the bills and get this message out with as much gusto and zeal as possible, you can help us by clicking on the link in the description below, the Patreon link, and you can go on out there. We ask you to pray about it and throw a few dollars our way every month. That helps us tremendously be able to continue doing this. We've we've got four years now under our belt, and we like to get these types of programs out that'll challenge, that'll that'll really help wake up the heart, the mind, the soul. And tonight we're going to do that with with Joshua Charles regarding, of course, the Antichrist, Freemasonry, and the church. And I don't think anybody out there watching or listening right now can doubt that we have problems in these different areas and we want to break this down and take a deeper look at it father i know when you presented the idea of bringing this this fine author to our attention and get him on our podcast i thought this sounded like a like just a great topic a great title to hit
1: yeah i we've been wanting to have you on for a while josh but uh i guess you had to go to ukraine (laughs) you you can tell (laughs) us what that means in, in a bit but uh yeah, my, my very good friend uh, Stephen Harriet and uh, Jason Jones recommended you, and uh, the topic is just phenomenal, and it's so important for us to talk about this. But um, yeah, so Josh is a Catholic uh, convert and also a former White House speechwriter. Uh, he's the number one New York Times bestselling author. He's a historian and a classic pianist. Very nice. Mm-hmm. So Stephen Harriet's <laughs> he's a songwriter and, and a musician himself, um, but... Uh,
2: and, and a comedian. He's very funny. Oh
1: my gosh, is he funny.
2: <laughs> Stephen's <laughs> one of the funniest, yeah. wittiest people I know. So and we got to
1: get him on again, Doug. Yeah. He's, he's great. But anyways, Josh, thank you so much for being here. Um, so this is an important topic and, and hopefully too, it'll help us all understand what in fact is going on right now and how do we get here? But, uh, Josh, you know, um, you you, you edited this book and maybe you can, we can start by talking about what, what this is all about. Cause, um, the, the book itself is kind of unpacks a lot of what, what we're talking about tonight. So maybe you can talk about that.
2: For sure. Well, first of all, thank you both for having me on. I've been longtime admirers of you both. I met with Bishop Strickland back in, uh, 2019, I think. And Doug, I had heard you had just moved to the diocese of Tyler. Yeah. Yep. And so uh, it's 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 a great honor and very humbling for me to be on with you, both of you. And um, and father, uh, you know, there's a lot of if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of uh, liturgical uh, infighting in the church right now. Right. And so whenever people ask my opinions about it or think what would be a solution, uh, one of the common ones I point to is Father Richard Richard Heilman. Because of how reverently you do the Novus Ordo, you know, I, oh, I admit thanks. I I prefer the TLM. I came in through an FSSP parish from sure. Protestantism, um, but if everybody celebrated the Novus Ordo like you do, I don't think we'd be in the situation we're in in the church. So thank well, you thank for you your gosh, and, uh, yeah.
1: it gives me an opportunity to say I'm actually working on a book that, that that builds the case for why we need to do this, and frankly, why I believe the mass itself it can save America. But you know what I what I do uh, Josh is is I I was actually inspired by Pope Benedict and of course my Bishop Morlino was was a great fan of his of he was, he was great and all that but what are they what are they asking for is what I call a purified novus ordo and it really is what Sacrosanctum Concilium and Vatican II documents called for and nothing else okay so liturgists and I think prideful liturgists after Vatican II used the spirit of Vatican II to kind of Bring in all their innovations that they wanted and modifications that they wanted. Um, I've weeded those out by and large, and while I stayed uh, true to what what we're able to do in the liturgy today. So anyway, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what what I'm doing.
2: God bless you for doing it.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah,
2: no. So as far as the, we originally connected about the book, and it's called "The War of the Antichrist with the Church and Christian Civilization." If people can see it there. Um, so this was actually written in 1885 by a priest named Monsignor George F. Dillon and I read it. <laughs> okay. Let me back up a little bit. I came into the church in July, 2019. Uh, so July 13th actually. So a Fatima date. And so my first Easter in the church was 2020. Uh, and again, if you guys don't remember, there was a, a it was a rather eventful year, uh, especially, uh, liturgically. So my first year, my first Easter as a Catholic was w- with a lockdown church couldn't even celebrate Easter as a Catholic no. uh, at least not at, not at the not at the liturgy. So during that time I was doing a ton of research on uh, eschatological issues. I was studying the Freemasonry issue a bit more, how that all happens a whole other story, but it was pretty providential. And so I was on an amazing resource for researchers, archive.org, where there's a ton of old books up there that you can find and because I'd heard about this book that had been endorsed by Pope Leo XIII about Freemasonry that apparently laid it all out. And that book was The War of the Antichrist with the Church and Christian Civilization by, by Monsignor George F. Dillon. And so here, here's how we described it in the back in case any of this sounds relevant to your audience. It says, Monsignor Dillon details the Masonic plot to dechristianize the world through, and here are the agenda items, through the separation of church and state through democratic ideology, meaning the people are sovereign, not God, religious indifferentism, civil marriage and easy divorce laws, secularized education, the encouragement of moral decay among the population, the destruction of the temporal and spiritual authority of the Pope, all animated by an atheistic socialist, communist, and ultimately pantheistic ideology of nature worship that will climax with the arrival of the Antichrist.
1: Holy cow, he wrote that in the 1800s? Oh.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I literally on. just made he sure wrote I covered that last week. Yeah. That yeah. <laughs> well that's what it felt like when I was reading I... it.
0: Josh, I'm sorry. I don't get it. I don't see the correlation with our times right now. <laughs> what am I missing?
2: Yeah. Well, the other thing that was interesting is um uh I knew from my study of the church fathers. The church fathers played a pivotal role in me coming to the Catholic Church from Protestantism. That's a whole other story. But when I began studying the eschatology issue, I knew from St. Robert Bellarmine, who wrote, you know, one of the main treatises on the Antichrist. He had a chapter in there where he talked about one of the things that Antichrist will do, which is to bring the public sacrifice of the mass to an end. And so the fathers are unanimous on this, and they take it from Daniel 7, 9, and 10, I believe, maybe 11. Um, I'm doing it from memory. But Antichrist will bring the public celebration of the mass to an end for three and a half years. So when that's exactly what was going on during the lockdowns, I didn't necessarily think that was Antichrist because um, you know because he hadn't revealed himself yet, but it was certainly antichristic. It was what we would call in the church a type, so to speak, a prefiguring of yeah, what so Antichrist will ultimately do. And yep. so the only person to do this in all of Scripture, and again, it's not just my interpretation, this is the unanimous consensus of the fathers, which the Council of Trent in session four, teaches is is binding on all catholics so if the fathers are unanimous on something it's considered infallible and so a catholic cannot disagree with it and so um so that was the that was the context for me (laughs) discovering monsignor george Dillon's book and so a few years later i'm approached by tan and decided to to republish it there had been one republished in the 50s i think but it wasn't that good and it was only partial and uh and so basically what i did is i edited it so Uh, added a bunch of explanatory footnotes. Monsignor Dillon mentions a lot of people, places, events that most people today probably wouldn't know about. Truth be told, I didn't even know some of the different monarchs and princes and figures he mentions. So just explaining who those people are, so when they're reading it, they can much better understand it. And then I also wrote a pretty big introduction, kind of laying out what what his case was, but also really bolstering it from quotes from uh, different popes over the centuries. Uh, I've noticed that there are two extremes in the church, um, I'm a little bit more sympathetic with one. You guys can probably guess which one. But the, on one extreme is, are those who think a fr- Freemasons are behind everything in the church. Who There's a Freemason under every rock, basically. That's not true. Monsignor Dillon denies it. So does Leo XIII. We're plenty, Father, as you, as you know, you do lots of confessions. We're plenty capable of sending ourselves into a mess. <laughs> I'm sure. sure. So we don't need a Freemason to blame everything on. So Which is actually very dangerous. We, we need to be very careful about in my opinion, at least, externalizing sin too much. Ultimately, it's each of our individual souls standing before Jesus at the day of judgment. And uh, so we need to be careful about externalizing that struggle too much. But then on the other side, um, there are those who say, talk like this is just conspiracy theory and tinfoil hat and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And to which I would simply say, if that's what they think, well, then they would have to also say, that multiple centuries of supreme pontiffs were tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists. Uh, and now if they want to do that, then fine, they're consistent. But I, I don't think most of them would. Um, and, and frankly, I just laid out the agenda. Uh, multiple popes warned about it, especially Leo Thirteenth, Monsignor Dillon, in great detail. And it's just, look around us. It, it's, it's, it's all happening to one degree or another all across the Western world. And uh, there's really no denying that element of it.
0: Josh, I'm curious if you could uh, break down, what was it that, kind of motivated you inspired you to want to do a book on the antichrist like well something inside you that just triggered or was it something you saw or did you get an inspiration in in some mystical illustrious way what happened
2: no uh, i wouldn't claim that i mean the (laughs) lockdowns were a catastrophe for our society Hmm. uh, and the world but for me personally it was great (laughs) it was one of the most spiritually productive intellectually productive time periods of my life honestly I've never read, written, or fasted as much as I did during those three months. So it was really, really good. And so I think it really came from that. I wouldn't claim it was mystical. I just think it was it was a really intense time. And and the relevance of it all, you know, I'll say as a convert, um, I'm very, very thankful for many of the wonderful cradle Catholics. Father Heilman, I think you're a cradle Catholic. Doug, are you a cradle Catholic? I am, yeah. Okay. So obviously you guys are great, and, and there's plenty like you. Um, but I will say, uh, there are a lot that aren't like you too, <laughs> if you haven't That's noticed. Great. And, and, uh, and so, um, there are many ideologies in the Western world in particular that I think have completely invaded the church. Most Catholics don't look any different from the world. And Monsignor Dillon's book was not only deeply relevant as to the events that had been happening in our world, not just during COVID, but frankly, over the last century or so. Um, but he really calls out theologically and historically the revolutionary ideologies that underpin a lot of what many modern Catholics just kind of accept. It's in the air they breathe. And and so that was a part of it as well. I didn't want people to be able to just brush this stuff aside as a conspiracy theory. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's much, much deeper than that. Um, it goes back to a lot of things that are right in Scripture, right in the Fathers. Um, it, it, it literally goes to... You know, for for basically since Constantine, really before then, because the kingdom was growing and growing, but but really uh, since the ancient church, Christendom has been building. I would say starting around the Protestant revolt, it starts coming down, and then that process speeds up a lot in the 18th century, and I'd say it's on overdrive right now. So we're in the process of seeing a um, an apostate civilization built, and people need to remember that an apostate civilization is far worse than a pagan one. Because a civilization that's never known Jesus is in a bad state, but a civilization that knew him and knowingly rejected him is in a far worse state. Mm, And that's the state we're in now. And and so the question really involves, um, not to sound too melodramatic or anything, but it really involves titanic historical forces. You know, basically, I, I think you can summarize it this way. We as Catholics, you know, as a Protestant, I had all sorts of weird and funny ideas about Catholics and grace. As a Catholic, I realized how silly those ideas were, but there's no more grace-filled religion than the Catholic faith. And we as Catholics believe that our human nature needs God's grace to get to heaven. Uh, not only that, but we can't do anything without it. There's nothing good we can do that's totally pleasing, worthy of heaven in the sight of God without God himself extending this gift of himself into our souls through grace, through the sacraments. And so the question then becomes, well, uh, what is what is the basis of Christian civilization? What's the basis of Catholic civilization? It's really that. It's nature being assumed by grace and, and being elevated and directed toward heaven. And so what's the basis of an anti-Christian, apostate civilization? It's anything that separates those two, which really gets to the basis of the, the word religion. It means, I'm forgetting what the Latin term is, but it means to join, to bring together. Whereas the basis of the word diabolical means to separate. And so essentially Christian civilization is nature that's been joined to grace mm. and, and, and all the implications of that in law, in culture, in music, and the arts, obviously in liturgy and worship. Um, and then a civilization that is is departing from that will separate nature from grace. And that's why all those agenda items relate to separating nature from grace, whether it's the state from the church or parents from their children in education or husband and wife with easy divorce laws, whatever it may be, it's all about separating nature from grace and 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 that's essentially what Freemasonry is about hmm. Josh
1: I absolutely agree with everything you're saying there and it, it seems and we hear this and I don't know if it's conspiracy theory or historical fact but <laughs> it seems that following the Council of Vatican II uh, there was a dismantling is what I call it or stripping out of a sense of the sacred I mean it seemed every move seemed to be in that direction, whether it was uh, messing with the liturgy, kind of whittling it down, making it, you know, uh, weak, uh, whether it was the architecture, art, um, everything seemed to be pointing to trying to um, take away all those um, beautiful forces that uh, helped us to become predisposed to receive the the supernatural grace God so desperately wants to give. So I always say, for instance, like if you walk into one of these glorious old churches, right? You know, you open up the door and you walk in, and what does your voice do? It goes like this. Right? Yeah. Because you have yeah. a strong sense. Of, but, but that's because we're human, right? And so that glorious church and our ancestors knew this helps me to go, oh, yeah, God is here. So it seems, and this is kind of where I'm at too. It seems like one of the first moves that they made was to take away everything that helps us mere humans to open our hearts to receive the, the Holy Spirit, to receive the power of supernatural grace in our lives. Is that, am I off base? Am I a conspiracy theorist? Or it just seemed like they got busy right away in the 1970s, right? I was just writing about this, that when I was uh, uh, going to grade school, we had the nuns in full habits and beautiful mm. liturgies in this choir doing, you know, polyphony and the incense and all this. And I went to my Catholic high school. and It was much the same, religious imagery everywhere. And the priest was always there and the nuns in the full habits. The following year, they stripped all that out. You know what year that was? 1973. Mm. Okay interesting i'm in the school of thought that i believe the exorcists when they say when you sin when you go against god you're opening up a portal i say a country-wide portal opened up and demons rained down but what did they do first they stripped everything out that gave us a sense of the supernatural what was the what was the art called back then uh it was um oh i I shouldn't even brought because i didn't remember but uh It'll come to me in a second but anyways it, you, am I' be in my conspiracy theories or, or is this what was was this a was this led by the Freemasons of the time or
2: well or? I that would go a little bit beyond what I can say I'm certain about sure. but I will say this there's a friend of mine I won't say his name um, but he's a seminary professor brilliant man two PhDs law degree history degree all that kind of stuff he's a he's a brilliant man um so he would consider himself a traditionalist now. But when he was growing up, he was a cradle Catholic. He considered himself a, uh, uh, a neoconservative, Novus Ordoite, I guess you could say. Sure. And, so, and he goes to a Novus Ordo now. That's all that's available. So he doesn't think it's invalid or anything. Um, but he, he much prefers the Latin mass. And so I asked him how that happened, how he went from being a conservative to a traditionalist, to use kind of the lingo these days. He told a very interesting story. He was studying at the ITI in Aust- uh, Austria. Uh, International Theological Institute is, I think, what it stands for. So he said there was a very early morning TLM that was sparsely attended, but most of the students there went to a 8 or 9 a.m. Novus Ordo. And so, but then they had one of the, I'm forgetting which cardinal it was, but he was part of the Concilium, which was the committee headed by Archbishop Anabali Bugnini, uh, and that it was revising the liturgy. So this cardinal had previously said, he'd been on the record as saying, that Bugnini was not a Freemason okay so when he comes to the iti i think this was in the 90s um and he and this cardinal is very much in favor of the nova sordo he was not no fan of the latin mass anything like that but one of the students asked him you know you said uh bunini was not a freemason you know what what had happened there and whatnot and the cardinal answered i have this all in writing from my friend i'm not reading it so but um the cardinal said you know yes i did say that at the time But since then, I've been able to see all the documents that Pope Paul VI saw. And he said, and after reading all those, nobody could doubt that Bugnini was a malevolent force from without who was in the church purely within to wreck her or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that was what this cardinal who had previously denied that Bugnini was a Freemason said. There's also a great new book, uh, Murder in the 33rd Degree. Brilliant title, I think, by Father, Mar- Father Mur, Murr, M-U-R-R. Um, I who I've
1: do a video of him the other day. Yeah,
2: recently yeah. been able to meet him. A uh, wonderful man. And uh, he it's not a novel. It sounds like a novel title, but he actually lived with the archbishop who was tasked by Paul VI with investigating uh, the inf- infestation of Freemasonry into the Vatican. And uh, it's a harrowing story of how that all happened. So he had kind of the inside story on it, and he he firmly believed. Now he didn't see all the documents or whatever, but you know, reading between the lines and whatnot, he firmly believed that Annabelle Bugnini was a Freemason. And not only that, what was what was perhaps even more disturbing. I'm forgetting his name, Father, uh, not fa- uh, Cardinal Baggio. I think was his name. He was the head of the, I think it was called the Dicastery of Bishops, something, I forget all the names for these Vatican agencies, but basically the 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 cardinal who was most in charge of helping the Pope appoint bishops around the world. Baggio was a Freemason. He was. Mm-hmm. So the the man who was helping the Pope appoint all the bishops of the world for about a decade was a Freemason. So people can make of that what they want. Uh And fr- frankly, uh, uh, I'm, sh- I'm shocked that our state isn't very much worse given that. And I think it's, it's one of those examples of Christ protecting his church, but no, 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 Yeah. My, what decade was that? Seventies. And he was into the eighties. I think he was dismissed right. from that position in 83 or 84. I could, okay. could be wrong on the years, but it was like early seventies to early eighties. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So right around this time. And so yeah, and
1: I always say, I, I went to seminary in the eighties and we weren't, Here's one indication. We weren't offered one minute of exposition of the Blessed Sacrament in all my seminary training. You know wow. so that was going on at that time. That was in style if you will, right? at the time.
2: What was the just out of curiosity, I know you're the interviewer. But what 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 was the justification for that as a convert that's just mind-boggling to it just me? Just
1: was considered uh you know what the archaic uh know-nothings did in the past, you know, that that we, we know better now. It was just the kind of air that was there. Isn't well, you know, that, isn't that what, what goes on with Freemasons and the elites of the culture and the. And even oh, yes. The, yeah, so we know better, you know, that we're. Yeah. Step aside, our our generation has arrived and, and just sit down and we'll, we'll tell you what to do, right?
2: Right. Well, there, there, so here's a, a there's a, co- a term I coined in the book called sola natura. You know, for coming from Protestantism, there's various heresies, sola scriptura, sola fide, whatnot. So I wanted, to, I was kind of working from that. Sola natura, meaning nature alone. Pope Leo Thirteenth calls it naturalism. And he says it's the animating philosophy, theology, really, behind Freemasonry. And again, it's related to nature and grace. None mm-hmm. of us can direct our gaze toward God and do good works out of love for Him unless God himself gifts himself to us in with grace. And so Freemasons uh, believe that the human mind in a state, they, don't, they deny original sin. So they don't believe that nature's even damaged, but they believe the human mind is essentially capable of achieving what we would say can only come through grace. And it really goes back to the garden. You can actually, I actually quote a number of Freemasonic sources here. Freemasonic sources literally say in some books this started in the Garden of Eve, and they they will present the side that the God that was trying to oppress mankind with the Catholic Church. They will literally say Catholic Church and the and and the one who is trying to help bring enlightenment, Lucifer, the light bearer with themselves. Um, and so think about what Lucifer um, was doing in the garden. Well, actually, let me back up a little bit further with St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas talks about what Lucifer was doing when he was rebelling you know, his non-servium, I will not serve, which actually comes from John Milton, but it's a great line. Um, And so the question was that Aquinas was addressing was, did Lucifer think he could be God? And Aquinas says, no, that's ridiculous. I mean, he's way too smart to know that he can be God. So, but what did he want to do? Essentially, uh, Lucifer wanted to enjoy the beatific vision by virtue of his own angelic nature without grace. He thought his angelic nature should be good enough to enjoy the beatific vision. And of course, Lucifer also knew that he who is being God would assume human nature, which is lower than angelic nature. So he was disgusted by this. And so part of Lucifer's rebellion was not only the idea that he should get the beatific vision without grace, but it was sort of this spiritual xenophobia, this spiritual racism to a certain degree, knowing that God would assume human nature and that the greatest of creatures would be uh, our lady. <laughs> so he was disgusted by all this. And that was why he he rebelled. And and his counterpart, Michael, what does Michael mean? It means Mikael, who is like God. So in Michael's very name, we have the absolute opposite of what Lucifer's approach was. So that was how he fell. So why is that relevant to the garden? Well, because Lucifer says to Adam and Eve, well, not Lucifer at that point, he's Satan. Um, did God say? And he basically says, you should go for this knowledge of uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil versus the, the tree of the no- of, of eternal life. And what's implicit in, in Satan trying to get them to eat of the tree of knowledge? Implicit is the idea, he says, you shall be like gods. Implicit in that idea is that divinity is already within you, waiting to be accessed by a certain uh, act of knowledge. And that's essentially what all occultism is. Frankly, this is the god of Oprah. When you hear Oprah and many of the modern-day New Age occultic types that she has on all the time, this is their religion. It's Satanism. It's the idea that the divinity is already within you. And um, so th- this idea pervades our culture in-, in ways that aren't always explicit, but they're nonetheless there.
0: Josh, um, I'm, I'm sure the audience is wondering, as I kind of am too, um, the Antichrist, is he already here? <laughs>
2: I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. And I and I, I think we've got to be careful about that kind of stuff. But as yeah. I've said and kind of joked, uh, I have suspicions. Um, yeah. Let me get into this other aspect. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we started about the catacon. I think this is really important to all of this. Um, you guys had Jonathan Kahn on, the uh, the Messianic Jewish guy, right. uh, who, who recently wrote a book about the return of the gods, I believe, right? Right, yeah. Okay. So I got that book. I didn't read every aspect of it, but I noticed he didn't talk about the catacon, which is very, very interesting because I think it's directly related to what he's talking about. So um, I'm doing all this from memory, so we'll see how it goes. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, this is the most explicit chapter where Paul talks about the Antichrist. He calls him the man of lawlessness. And so he says that there is this catacon that's the Greek term for it, that with restrains the coming of Antichrist. So then the question is, well, what is this katakon? And it's actually, there's not a, a consensus among the fathers uh, on exactly what it is. There's a majority opinion, but it's not a unanimous consensus. So Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness. So the catacon would intrinsically be a source of lawfulness because it restrains the coming of Antichrist. It holds him at bay. Well, what is the church always taught that the source of lawfulness and order in the world is? The church's teaching of the two powers, which is the priesthood and the temporal power, and that those two operating in concert restrain evil. And that's essentially what Christendom was. When uh, we have our soul, Father, you know all about this. Our soul consists of two basic powers, intellect and will. Our intellect is how we know. Our will is how we choose. Now, what does grace do? Grace tells our intellect, enlightens our intellect, so it sees the truth in all its fullness. And, our, and then it, it empowers our will to be able to choose that highest truth and therefore follow God. In a state of original sin, we cannot do that. It's very important. For, this is why we're baptized. This is why we receive our Lord in the in the Eucharist. This is why we're confirmed. This is why if you're a father, you have holy orders. If you're a married couple like Doug, uh, you've, you've got the sacrament of marriage, all that. This is all to keep our, our intellect enlightened and our will strengthened so that we can choose to love God and neighbor Love God for his own sake and love neighbor for God's sake. That's essential. We can't do that without without the sacraments. So um and, and that and that goes
1: the devil's up to him easier that way. Oh,
2: absolutely. Yep. Well, but this relates to the state and government as well. It's it's there's a lot of details to it, but it's it's essentially this the, the temporal power is no different. Um that's why the temporal power cannot legislate that even the natural law unless it's guided by the spiritual power right. of the church. And if people question that, simply look at history of the last few centuries. Now, we not only aren't legislating the nat- the natural law, we're legislating the unnatural law. Right. <laughs> because for so long, temporal powers of the West have not been guided by the spiritual power of the church. Nope. Uh, so, th- so those two being together, they're distinct, but being together in union uh, is very, very important. So... Essentially, that's my theory, that Christendom is what held back the coming of Antichrist. So the separating of those two things, the temporal power from the spiritual power, was part of the this catacomb no longer restraining evil. And so when it, when it was restraining, what is it restraining? It's restraining Satan and, de- and demons. Um, if you go to Apocalypse 20, Apocalypse 20 says that the great dragon was bound and thrown into the pit. And after that, thrones were set up and whatnot. The the patristic consensus on this is that that refers to the age of the church and that Satan was bound with our Lord's passion and resurrection. So the power of the cross is what bound Satan. And so when you read the fathers, there's all these incredible stories about the Catholic priesthood evangelizing the gospel, and they're having all these crazy encounters with pagan priests and even demons themselves who are doing battle with them. These demons are producing magical effects. You know, they're working with nature to produce visual and auditory phenomena to fool people. And Paul also says that when Antichrist comes, he'll come with all uh, diabolical power and and signs and wonders, false miracles. Okay, and could so, that be
0: starting to interrupt, could that be even like the UFO phenomenon right now?
2: Let me. I, I am with you. I'm with you. But can okay. le, le, I, I? What can we come back to that and just a yeah, second? you bet. You okay, bet. We'll yeah, put a but, pin in that okay. one. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. So <laughs> you're 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 not gonna let you're gonna cover everything, Doug. <laughs> all the easiest questions. Yeah. Um. So so no, but th- these there's incredible stories about Catholic priests directly doing battle with Satan, and many of them like like Saint Athanasius, and in incarnation of the Word. He says to all the pagans. It's like, you're decrying our religion, but look all around you. Your altars are falling, and yet altars to Christ are rising everywhere. The pagan temples are uh, emptying, but temples to Jesus Christ are are going from Persia to Spain. And so there was this great – and there's no natural reason for that to have occurred, given the claims of Christ and the Christian message and whatnot. So that is how Christendom was built. It literally flowed from the sacramental power that was given to us by Christ's sacrifice on the cross – uh, distributed to the sacraments. That's literally what was building Christian civilization and pushing back the force, literally the forces of of the demonic. So and then
0: well, I'm sorry. So then while nobody can clearly say, and I and I know, you know I'm asking you if you think Antichrist is here, uh, there are people who are saying, oh, I think it's so-and-so. I think it's so-and-so. I mean, and I've heard this, you know, personal conversations or something, you know, on, on social media. But you're saying that... At- Obviously, unless God makes that abundantly clear, we're never going to know for sure if and when. But you suspect it simply because as Christendom has been kind of beat up and as the church and the temple powers and all have kind of not done their thing like they should. We've got a nice wide open lane for the Antichrist to step in. Is that kind of where you're going with this? Yeah,
2: exactly. Well, because Paul also refers to the great apostasy. He says Christ will not come unless the rebellion, the apostasia, Hmm. comes first. Okay. And so there is this great apostasy that will precede the coming of Christ. In fact, the Roman Catechism issued by the Council of Trent directly covers this. It says there will be three principal signs that Christ is coming back. One, the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. Two, the great apostasy. And three, the appearance of Antichrist. So in my mind, I've got many reasons for this. I can expand on detail if you want. But in my mind, the first condition has been met. I do believe the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. This is. Explicitly prophesied by our Lord. The third sign obviously hasn't happened. Antichrist has not yet revealed himself. He will. He will be a public figure. He's it's not going to be some Gnostic, you know, ruler behind the scenes. I, I mean, maybe he is that right now, but the final three and a half year persecution where the public celebration of the Mass and whatnot is made illegal. Uh, that will be we'll know who he is at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the question is, is is the second sign, what about the second sign, the great apostasy? Has it happened? Is it happening? Is it about to happen? I would essentially argue, I think my best read of what the great apostasy is, again, what built up Christian civilization, the union of nature and grace to the power of the sacraments and all the implications of that. Uh, uh, temporal and spiritual brought together. Sacramental marriage brought together. Uh, religious education brought together. All these things that go into building Christian civilization. And so if if Christian civilization is the catacomb, it's the restrainer, then the breaking down of that, and thus the thing that holds back the coming of Antichrist, would happen when a civilization starts forming that is on the exact opposite basis: mm-hmm. separating church and state, separating man and wife by making marriage a purely natural contract, separating children and parents by making education uh, not just unreligious but anti-religious. Um, you know all these different agenda items. Um, and so, uh, if if somebody will say, uh, "Do you think the Great Apostasy is going on?" I'd say. If this isn't it, what would it be? Christendom mm. is virtually done. I uh, uh, There's very little left of it remaining. Um, and there are actually some amazing writings about this from Henry Cardinal Manning in the 1860s called the, the, uh, the Present Crisis of the Holy See. And he goes through a lot of prophecy on this from the church fathers and whatnot. Uh, it's too much to get into right now, but he was dealing with, at the time, the issue of the pope's uh, temporal power. That's something we've long since forgotten. Um, but the pope used to have the papal states. This is how this is how popes, by the way, got into possession of so many thousands of documents from Freemasons because they had the papal states had their own police force. They had their own. They, they executed people. You know, the death penalty wasn't sinful, frankly. <laughs> um, and so they came into possession of these thousands and thousands of, of Masonic documents. And that's how a lot of these that's how we know about the Alta Vendita, which is published in full in this book. Um, and that's how we have the letter of Piccolo Tigre, the little tiger, which is also in this book. Um, this is how we know about a lot of what happened. And so Cardinal Manning was essentially saying he believed that when the, when the temporal power of the pope was essentially brought to, brought to an end, that Antichrist was certainly around the corner. Mm-hmm. And so the temporal power of the pope has not been completely destroyed, but it's a shadow of what it used to be um you know the the a central state in italy has now become just a, a mini mini state with the vatican um whereas you know the first daughter of the church france and united kingdom and germany all you know most of europe uh was uh you know it was it was never a perfect relationship but they were submitted to the authority of the holy father on faith and morals now virtually all of them are done there, there's nothing left they've all rebelled they've all apostatized and so if this isn't the great apostasy, I don't know what is. And so is Antichrist here? I can't know with certainty. Um, but I think it's very possible.
1: I think we have to say that if it's not the great apostasy, there is an aggressive movement to get yeah. there right now. Yeah. And um, I, I wrote something recently. I just want to share this if I could. But um, this moment in history uh, is startlingly different, I said. Um Heralded for almost all of its 247 years, our nation has led the world in its strong morals, character, and values. It would seem the writers of our Constitution were inspired geniuses, yet uh, President John Adams quickly warned in 1798, he wrote this, We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled By morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, and gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So there it is. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people, and now the moral and religious people are what they're they're they're, they're chastised um mm-hmm. you're you're an extremist uh, you know i get i get that tag you know that i'm some radical fanatical extremist for what and this is the way i've been putting it lately for uniting at the foot of the cross that's all that's all just staying true to the teachings of our church and not compromising, not giving way at all, and also calling out, as a shepherd should, the wolves that are devouring our sheep. Um, But because in this present time that we're living in right now, anyone like me, uh, uh, Bishop Strickland, uh, but anyone who dares, dares stand against this uh, pagan uh, apostasy that's going on right now uh, is is brutalized in the present. So if we're not there, Josh, aren't aren't we fast getting there?
2: Hmm. I think so. Uh, this gets me to. I know we're we're running a little low on time, so I'll try to make it fast. It's a huge and deeply profound topic, but it relates back to what I the uh, Rabbi Kahn in his book about the return of the strong gods. So Apocalypse 20 mentions that the great red dragon is bound and then the thrones go up. The thrones are the apostolic thrones of the bishops, the age of the church. But then it says at verse 7 that the dragon is once again released for a short time. So I've given a lecture about this. I think it's directly related to this catacomb issue. The dragon is Satan, by the way. So you know that there will be a period of history closer to our, our Lord's return where while he was bound before, again, not destroyed, he wasn't in hell. Yeah, that, that, you know, final condemnation to hell, that comes at the very, very end. Um, so, but during the age of the church, he's still able to do some things, but he's severely restrained. But then, verse seven says he'll be released for a short time. I believe this is directly related to what many have called the passion of the church. This is directly taught, paragraph 675 to 77 in the Catholic Catechism. Basically, what it says is that the church, as Christ's mystical body, will typologically repeat what he experienced in his individual body what did he experience in his individual body well the passion he was persecuted by his own people uh who teamed up with his pagan enemies to persecute him and his followers preeminently him and so among the the great sources i found on this is saint pope gregory the great his moralia and on job it's it's about the length of City of God and Confessions together. It's about 1,500 pages. It's massive. But it's one of the most powerful works I've ever read. And Pope Gregory the Great sees in Job a picture of Christ and the church. And, of course, Job is being persecuted with God's permission by Satan. So St. Pope Gregory the Great sees a whole lot in Job that's related not only to the passion of our Lord, but the passion of the church, which is why St. Pope Gregory the Great, I don't have the line in front of me, but, the short version is he predicted that the church prior to the arrival of Antichrist would be in the worst state it had ever been in. He said that the penances would be weaker. He said that there would be fewer miracles. And he said, maybe quite interestingly, he said that the words of doctrine would fall silent. That, that, that is a word for word quote of what St. Pope Gregory the Great said. I believe this is all deeply connected with the passion accounts in, um, in, in the gospels. Uh, so the model, I basically, again, we, we don't have too much time. This is a, a deep and profound subject, so we can't do it justice right now, but hopefully we can hit some high points really quick. I think the model right now for all of us should be Our Lady and St. John. And they went with our Lord to the cross, and they were silent most of the time. Well, all the time, actually. John spoke a little bit at the, at the Last Supper, but that was it. It was Peter who was the one that had this... You know, I think very virile, masculine desire to strike down the enemies of the, of the church, i.e., Christ. But Christ specifically told him no. And Christ said in in the Gospel of Luke, this is speaking to the guards who had come to arrest him. He said, "This is your hour and the power of darkness." And of course, we know that all throughout his public ministry, he was kind of anticipating this last these last three and a half days, which of course lines up with the three and a half years. That scripture prophesies Antichrist will engage in the most uh, horrific persecution of the church in history, including the banning of the public sacrifice of the mass. So I think there are many, many uh, reflections that all of us, I, I actually encourage Catholics, let's all read the passion accounts together, but read it as typology. Read it as something that will be fulfilled in those end times, whether we're there or not. I do have my suspicions, very dark suspicions, but whether we're there or not, let's let's all I encourage Catholics. let's read the scriptures typologically and see what we may find because I will say what I have found and what I've seen when I presented my research to other people, I've seen peace, I've seen peace not because it doesn't not because it answers every question, it doesn't. I don't presume to tell people this is exactly what's going on in the church. I think we all need a degree of epistemic humility here um, but you know what happened during the passion? Peter was silent. In fact, he denied knowing Jesus. Um, Most of the apostles left. There's also a Eucharistic element, which is why I think it's related to the liturgical stuff. Let me see if I can combine two uh, quick Bible stories really fast, because I think you both would find it really interesting. So John is the most uh, mystically important gospel of all four. So when does John first identify Judas as the betrayer? John 6, which is the most explicit treatment of our Lord's real presence in the Eucharist by our Lord himself. That's when John specifically says that. So in the gospel of John as well, uh, John is leaning against our Lord's chest and he said, cause our Lord is saying, you know, one of you will betray me. And then John asks him privately, who will it be Lord? And Jesus says to him, the one to whom I give this morsel. And many of the fathers say that this was the Eucharist, uh, And so our Lord hands Judas the morsel. And John says, after he received the Eucharist, immediately Satan went into him. So that should really reemphasize what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10, about receiving our Lord unworthily. (laughs) Because receiving our our Lord unworthily for Judas was not medicine. It was his pathway to being perfectly possessed by Satan. Okay? So... We have a liturgical abuse of the most massive scale right before our Lord's passion. I think it's deeply significant. Now, mm-hmm. let me connect it to one other thing. Um, Daniel has many prophecies about Antichrist and about the uh, Antichrist making the public sacrifice of the mass illegal. So, the way prophecy works in scripture is there's multiple fulfillments, there's an ultimate fulfillment. You know, there will be one Antichrist, but as St. John says in his, his shorter letters, there are many Antichrists now. So anybody who denies that the sun has come in the flesh is an Antichrist. So just as there is going to be a final persecution of the church, there are many miniature persecutions of the church. And it's it's sort of like history repeats through rhyme and it crescendos as it gets to the conclusion, right? So um, one of the typological uh, fulfillments of Antichrist was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greek king and he basically controlled the Holy Land after Alexander the Great's empire fell apart. And what did he want to do? He's a type of Antichrist, identified universally by all the fathers. What did Antiochus want to do? Well, he wanted everybody in his empire, he controlled the part with the Holy Land and modern-day Syria and whatnot, to all be one people. In fact, Scripture tells us he sent a letter to all the individual people saying, basically, give up your national identities and become one people. So, kind of interesting. Antichrist seems a bit globalist, if, if, if you ask me. And so... But then it ultimately climaxes in what is a pre-fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. This is something Daniel also also prophesies. And then our Lord applies to Antichrist as well. So what does Antiochus do? He's escorted into the temple. And scripture doesn't say exactly what he does, but just by the fact of a Gentile going into the temple, he was desecrating it. Not only that, he went into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year. And it was such a serious thing that they attached a rope to his leg That in case God killed him, they could pull him out without anybody else having to go in. So this is a very serious thing. And this pagan Gentile is going in there. Other accounts say that he set up a pagan sacrifice. So whatever it was, it was really, really, really bad. Okay, And, And so what's really interesting about this is who he's escorted into the temple by. He's escorted by a man named Menelaus. Who's Menelaus? Well, Menelaus was the Jewish high priest. But there's something interesting about Menelaus. Menelaus wasn't really the Jewish high priest. He had stolen the high priesthood from his brother, Jason. And scripture specifically says Jason was no high priest because Jason had stolen it from Onias III. Onias III was the legitimate Jewish high priest. And he was put on house arrest. So Jason stole it from him by giving the Greeks a bunch of money and the Greeks saying, fine, we recognize you as the high priest. And then Menelaus stole it from Jason. So we have a false Jewish high priest escorting a type of Antichrist into the temple. And of course, St. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2 that Antichrist will sit in the temple of God declaring that he is God. Now there's a debate in the Fathers, is that a rebuilt Jewish temple? Is that the church? The jury's out. St. Thomas Aquinas says in his commentary in 2 Thessalonians, it will seem as if Antichrist had darkened the church. That's what St. Thomas Aquinas says. So I put all that out there simply to say there's a lot of typology in Scripture that is worth very seriously considering and considering in great silence and reverence with John and Our Lady at the cross. And what I will say is I think um, I think this is the way to contemplate this crisis. is less by headline chasing mm. and more by digging into the riches through fasting and prayer of Scripture with the fathers. Yeah. Now,
0: Josh, does your book cover a lot of this?
2: No, actually, <laughs> it doesn't okay. cover any of that aspect of it. I'm writing a book right now. I no. I wrote a, a very big manuscript during the lockdowns. It was about a 350-page manuscript with 1,000 footnotes. Mm. So I'm basically trying to clean that up and update it in light of three years of research, and I'm hoping to publish it next year.
0: Well, because I'll just say this real quick, Father, before I pass back to you, is You know, Father and I, you know, Josh, we always try to, we want to present material to people and subjects to people that, that are not going to be, you know, um, over dramatized or, you know, get, get so emotive that people just get caught up in in this excitement or that and having the, like the details you just laid out, um, And some of that is is new to my ears, and yet there are people who will say, well, did you hear the Antichrist is supposed to be this? Because I heard this. They hear one or two quotes on what the Antichrist is supposed to be or who it's supposed to be, and then they run with that. And they start comparing that to different people they might see in, in, in here and there in the world. And I think what you just explained points out that there's a lot of depth behind some of these kind of prophetic mystery Uh, some of this prophetic mystery to the Antichrist. And I would just encourage people to to be very cautious, very careful when you just hear a quote here or a quote there, or see some video on YouTube that just comes off and says, Antichrist is here. And that's the thumbnail, you know, for clickbait. We don't want to go that route. It's a real issue. It's a real thing but it needs to be discerned very carefully so we don't get caught up in the lies or, or, or misunderstandings of it. Is, is that accurate, what I just said?
2: Oh, 100%. I tweeted yesterday um, about the Gnostic right, what I call the Gnostic right. I've been very, this would be a whole other topic. I've been very concerned that since 2020, we've entered what I call a, a what feels like a permanent fog of war. Mm. And what's happened is, is many people, in many cases, you know, for justified reasons, we've had institutions left and right, up and down, completely fail us and and lie to us, and and not only lie to us, but try to force those lies on us through intimidation and coercion. Um, and so I understand why people are are very untrusting right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, what's happened is is you know even things like flat Earth, or QAnon, uh, basically. So when I was tweeting yesterday, I was quote retweeting this Q guy. And the short version is Q is utterly occultic and people need to not follow it whatsoever. Mm. Um, it's too much to get into right now. I know we're limited on time, but what's happened is, is there's a whole lot of Gnosticism. And what is the appeal of Gnosticism? It's very much the appeal of Freemasonry and occultism. It's this idea that I can get this, this private knowledge to kind of know what's going on with everything. And, and um, there's a great appeal to it because we're in a very chaotic world where less and less seems certain. We can't even agree on what male and female are anymore, for goodness sakes. Yeah. And so in in that sort of situation, the temptation is to latch onto anything that would give us a false sense of consolation. Well, we know from our Lord and from the whole history and tradition of the Catholic uh, faith, as Father Heilman so often teaches so profoundly, uh, the ultimate uh, way to, to be safe in what is going on is by clinging to the cross, mm. right? Right. Yeah. And, and I don't mean that as just a um, just a, a coy line. It, it it is many of us to be to be at the cross is to shut our mouths, and that goes for me too. Many of us being at the cross means do more fasting during the week. Mm. Many of us being at the cross means being consistent with Eucharistic adoration and being quiet. Yeah. You know, Saint uh, Cardinal Sir. Well, you probably will be a saint, but Cardinal Siraz's book, the 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 power of silence, is one of the most amazing books I've ever read. We know in the Book of Apocalypse that this this grand moment uh, in the book of Apocalypse when 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 uh, all of heaven is in awe of God and his providential sovereignty over history, Apocalypse says there's 30 minutes of silence. So, you know, taking up the cross for many of us is just battling with our vices. And in a social media age, that is just being way too curious. It's talking too much. It's listening too little. And all of those things tend toward um, us losing what St. Francis de Sales was the most important thing we needed to maintain, which was peace of soul. Because if you don't have peace of soul, you are going to be constantly in a fog of war where frankly there are very powerful forces in this world. I I I edited this book on Freemasonry. I don't disbelieve that there are powerful, malevolent forces in this world. If you wanna if you want to end on the UFO thing, I can talk about that. I I I have a theory <laughs> on that. It's, again I it's too much to go into perhaps uh quickly. We can maybe do a follow up, but but I will say this, um, I, and I made sure my priest always knew which books I was reading, and there were some books who said, yeah, let's not do that. Um, I became convinced through my study of Freemasonry and what the Pope said and reading some of their own writings, I became convinced that there are, well, let's look at just what the world was like before the incarnation. I mean, St. Paul says the gods of the nations are demons, and, and the, the pagan priesthoods worked with these demons to control societies. Okay, so when Satan is released and he's no longer held back as much as he was right after our Lord's crucifixion, is it crazy to think that that alliance will be rekindled and that that will once again be the ruling force on this planet in some tangible way? No, it's not. It's exactly what we would expect. I mean, Scripture literally says Satan was bound. That's incarnation forward. But then prior to his return, he'll be unbound. So something like the pre-cross world will mm-hmm. seem to return. It goes back to Rabbi Khan's book, The Return of the Old Gods. And Naomi Wolf has talked about this. I'm, I'm trying to get in contact with her because I want to be – she's been reading the Bible. You know, She, she used to be the secular Jewish woman, and she was really on top of things with the vaccines and a lot of COVID stuff. She's reading the Bible, and she's talking about it. I want to get this to her because she was saying the same thing. She said, it seems like the old gods have returned or they're returning. Like something like this paganism that ancient Israel was constantly being infested by seems like it's coming back. It's like, yeah, I think it is. And and so all that to say, why would humans uh, ally with demonic intelligence? Well, for a very simple reason. Demons are way smarter than us. Angelic intelligence is way smarter than us. So if if angelic intelligence in the person of demons could find willing human agents and say to them – will aggrandize your power, will aggrandize your wealth, your pleasure, your fame, whatever it may be, in exchange for you know their souls, really. But um, are they going to do that? Absolutely. They did it before. That was the whole, except Israel, and of course Israel was falling quite often, but barring Israel, that was the whole pre-Christ civilizational order. That was it. And so I do think, um, I wouldn't be surprised if very advanced knowledge has been uh given in those sorts of alliances we know from scripture itself that pharaoh's magicians uh were able to produce pretty astounding effects yeah. and we know from saint paul he says explicitly that antichrist will come with all the power of satan and false signs and wonders so there will be there will be phenomena that antichrist is able to effect that will appear miraculous okay so in a technological age uh it's hard to think that that would not be, I'm sorry, it's hard to think it would, it would, that would be achieved without technology, without very advanced technology that, that takes advantage of forces in nature that we're perhaps not very learned about now, Mm -hmm. at least according to the the standard history book. So, so I have many thoughts about that. That's getting into the, uh, the more dark web part of my brain here, (laughs) but yeah, I, I do. I personally, my gut instinct, uh, Daniel O'Connor and I are going to be doing a podcast about this. He's doing great. He's working on a book on this. Have you guys met Daniel? No. Oh, you've got to talk to Daniel. Yeah.
0: I'm familiar with him, but we haven't had him on.
2: Okay. You've got to reach out to him. He's great. And so, yeah, I, I definitely think, um, this UAP alien issue, uh, uh, yeah, will be used for deceptive purposes for sure. Right, and, well, and frankly, it's very connected with the Q stuff as well. So, if uh, anybody in your audience is falling for Q stuff, I beg them to stop. Mm, I beg them to stop.
0: Good advice. Good advice, Sam. Yeah.
2: Josh, can I get your opinion on this? And this is what
1: I see: is uh, you, you pointed to to the original sin, to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and and that pride, right? That you'll become as gods. And it, it seems like you know we have in our nature almost. Uh, like, you know, if, we, if we're disconnected from the divine life, what are we left to be? The, like the beasts. And the beasts, you know, who is the king of the jungle, you know? And and uh, so that kind of uh, takes control of us. We not only maybe want to be a ruler and take control and have power over other people, or we just want to be in league with those uh, the way I always put it when I was growing up the most obnoxious thing and I never got into it. I hated it with a passion, but this uh the uh the cool kids in the playground, right? <laughs> and they stood over there and they made fun of uh other people and they counted themselves cool. But that's kind of it's almost in our new human nature when we're disconnected from the divine life. Okay. Having said that, then what are we called to, to be it under the power of grace, and I, I, I I've been saying to uh, unite at the foot of the cross. All right, but what happens once once we get there? And I've been listening to you. This has been so excellent, Josh. But it, it, sometimes when you're at the foot of the cross, you just shut up, right? You just you're just quiet, uh, or you're in adoration. But what are you doing there? And here's how I see it. I, I love the scripture reading, and I turned sixty five this year. And so it's even coming stronger for me. But I think that we're called to follow the direction that Jesus gave when he pulled that little child over. And it says, unless you become like this child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And I've been pointing out what our children, their innocence and, and trusting. I've been actually latching onto this song by John Denver, Rhymes and Reasons, you know, the wisdom of the children, the innocent and trusting nature of the children. That's what we're called. to See, when we get in the power of grace, all right, what, what are we? We're just there. And uh, what can I do, God? What can, How can I please you? Uh, you're amazing. You know, kind of like a kid who adores his parents, right? They're learning whole languages at two years old. I, might, I can't learn Latin at 60, you know. And, <laughs> but why? Because the, the innocence and trusting of the children. And they trust that, oh, you're God of miracles. Okay. You know, that unless you... you, you it was because of your faith, Jesus would tell those he granted a miracle to, right? Your trust, your belief that I could do this. And today, among the elitists of our time, if you believe in miracles, you're naive. You know, you're, you're, you, know you don't know. You see what I'm saying there?
2: Yeah. I
1: think we're called to be children. And that even goes to, we're called to be playful. We're called to celebrate this life. And that's attractive to other people. I've always said this, you know, be excessively joyful and loving and kind and, you know, generous and all that. And then people look at you, what you find? what you find, right? Well, I'm just over here at the foot of the cross. I love God more than anything else. And I just want to please him. And I'm so grateful for what he's given me. And I, I just... I, I just love the life that he's given me. And I just want other people to love it as the, their life as well. I want to, they want to love God. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm, totally. Am I off my rocker? <laughs> Cause I, <laughs> no, I, think, no. I think all the Freemason and Gnosticism and all this stuff is the cool kids in the playground effect. Yes. The, the pride of the, our first parents, you know, you'll become, well, you'll become gods. you know, yeah. you'll be the cool kids in the playground, right? You'll know right and wrong.
2: Oh, totally, and and many Freemasonic sources you'll see there's there's one uh, hymn, so to speak, in a Freemasonic source from the 1720s that says something to the effect of uh, the difference between man and beast is the difference between a mason and a man. So there really is that sort of a view of it. And so, you, Father, I think you'll love this. So I've had a phrase I came up with this in college. I wasn't a Catholic yet, but I, it's even more true as a Catholic. I say as I become older. I want to become less childish and more childlike. Exactly. That's, that's kind of one of my phrases. And so, um, I love it. Uh, you know, I will say, Doug, you talk, you've talked a lot about this, I think, in your, in your, uh, material for men and whatnot is mentorship. Hmm. The reason why I think this is very, this may sound not connected to the cross or whatever, and being, it, it actually is, I think, um, mentorship has changed my life. Um, since I was in high school, I've had older men in my life, uh, ranging from 15 years older to 30 plus years older. Um, my first mentor were, he's still like a second father to me today, you know, 20 plus years later. Why is that relevant to being at the cross? Well, because Proverbs and, and, uh, as I found out, uh, coming from Protestantism, the other wisdom books I didn't know existed in the Bible, wisdom and Sirach and whatnot. They all talk about the value of, um, basically being slapped by a wise man. <laughs> and there's something immensely powerful, um, having relationships in your life with people you love and respect where uh, discipline and love are in the same relationship. Yeah. It it it, yeah. it makes you feel so much more powerful because then you realize that your pride is like lying to you. Yeah. It's like the path of growing stronger is actually getting this this feedback, you know, I'm a classical pianist. Uh, I trained at a very, very high level every single week I'd have to go in my, my teacher and I are still very close every single week. I'd go in to get slayed by my teacher and he was very kind as well, but that's what I, that was my whole life for years. And so it's the same sort of thing. Um, when you have that dynamic, it really shows us that our pride is what's blinding us, that our pride is what's preventing us from getting to that that higher degree of competence or expertise or skillfulness or in the case of what we're talking about holiness um it makes us think we have to put up pretenses all the time yes. and you know i think that's something we'll all struggle with i know i certainly do um till the our day we brand. die what right. was
1: that our brand yes brand <laughs> yeah
2: yeah and I'm, I'm always trying to be sensitive to that as far as i don't want to ever put up pretenses i, I try to right. be very authentic and direct um But but yeah, that's a struggle. But but having those kinds of relationships, mentoring relationships um, and cultivating those, I'll tell you, I have a heart for um, young people and especially young men. I helped found a Christian fraternity at my uh, university, the University of Kansas, my undergrad, and um, very few have mentorship. I think it's actually one of the great reasons we have such an insecure society where so many people are falling into the trans stuff. Um, the, the drug use, this we just saw that the suicide numbers in America have reached their, their record level. Um, this is related to family breakdown and all sorts of things, but you know, my parents divorced, uh, maybe about a decade, 11 years ago. Thank God, both of them are, one of them is in the church already. Another is on their way. Uh, my sister is about to come in in a month. She has an amazing testimony. Won't go into it now, but suffice it to say, uh, a lot of what's going on today and what a lot of people are falling for all of it. And she's now coming into the Catholic church and it was the beauty of the Latin mass that she went to that drew her in. Yep. And, and, uh, and so it's an amazing story. Hopefully we can talk about it some other time, but yeah, that mentorship, that, that combination of love and, and discipline, that combination of punching you in the face, but a bear hug afterward kind of a thing. I mean, God says he does that in the book of Hebrews. He says, you know, Paul, well, probably Paul Says that God chastens those He loves. He chastens the children, and uh, you know, there's. It's just so deep in the Catholic tradition. As I joked with my White House colleagues, you know, I become Protestant a year earlier. Uh, they were converts as well. I said, you know, the thing that sucks about being Catholic. They said, what? It's like you can't. We can't complain about suffering anymore, you know. <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I, if you're talking about uh, my experience with how that reality is manifested of becoming more childlike. I think it has to be, frankly, Father Heilman, it it, it involves everybody finding a Father Heilman for themselves wow. and, and everybody finding a Doug Barry. Um, and if, and, and I would just encourage your audience member, if you're an older man, you know, uh, late thirties or up, you know, please find younger men and offer yourself to them. Uh, if they don't take you up on it, that's fine. But, and the younger men, look for older men. There's a lot of people willing to give wisdom and love, um, and also help, uh, but they've just got to be asked. So there, there's a great, great need for uh, multi generational uh, edification, right, in these days, more than ever before. Um, so, anyway, for whatever that's worth.
1: Awesome. Yeah. All right.
2: Well, Josh, I
1: think that's our time for tonight. It's a great pl- place to end. This is, can we have you on again? This Of been, course. Yeah, this has really been great.
2: Yeah. It's my it's honor. Awesome. Thank you.
1: Let's end with a prayer in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
2: Amen. 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 Thank you both. Great honor. Thank you,
0: Josh. Thanks for being with us.